Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1980 film Breaker Morant. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great. Uh, Barrett, I was really uh, unsure what this movie was going to be about. Uh, with the ti- So I knew it was an Australian movie and I knew it was called Breaker Morant. So I'll be honest with you. Part of me was like, is this a movie about surfers? Is it a movie about <laughs> CB enthusiasts? Like I just didn't know. Uh, and it turned out to be something which is very much in my wheelhouse of interest and i thought this movie was great i will also say um whenever we watch a movie that overlaps with um with things that my colleagues study i bring it to them to say hey have you seen this so i talked with chris garretts uh who teaches world war one and teaches uh uh modern european history especially 20th century military history and he got really excited that we were talking about breaker morant today so um so yeah this is this is great what is your history with this film is this Something you had, uh, you saw in the 80s? Is this something you came to more recently? Yeah, no, I saw it uh, not long after it came out. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I had a friend who was very interested in film in general, the Australian New Wave in general. So he kind of alerted me to the Australian New Wave back in the late 70s. So I mentioned before there was a little art cinema in uh, Brunswick, Maine, where I went to school. And so I have a very vivid memory of, of going to that little cinema. It's kind of like the Trilon in, in Minneapolis mm-hmm. uh, and seeing and seeing the film. Uh, I won't say it was on a big screen, but it was bigger than my TV screen. So, yeah, sure. so I, this is a film that I saw, like I said, as it came out. Do you remember? Uh, it's a long time ago, but do you remember first impressions? I was blown away by it. Um both in terms of the way it handled the theme and just visually. I mean, I just think it's a really stunning movie to, to look at. And, uh, you know, certain images were just kind of um, engraved in my, in, my, in my brain from the film. So it's always had a very, I've always had a very powerful after memory of it. Is it something you had revisited before this? No, I have not. So it's been 43 years. <laughs> so we have uh, this is our actually our second Bruce Beresford film uh because we watched uh it's not exactly his follow up but a follow up to this movie we watched 1983's Tender Mercies uh back around 100 movies ago uh <laughs> so, somewhere around there um which is a movie I like a great deal I was trying to think is there anything I can I can come up with to sort of connect these so I'm sort of curious like like what does um what does Beresford mean to you as a filmmaker? He's made a lot of movies between films he's made in Australia, documentaries he's made, and then films he's made in the U.S. Is there anything that you think of when you think of Bruce Beresford? It's a really good question. I, I found a really interesting article about Beresford, about Breaker Morant and about Beresford. And uh, the author was kind of talking about, is is Beresford, Beresford an, an auteur or not? Which is a, another way to reframe your question. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I think... One of the things he points out about Beresford is that um, he's a very visually powerful filmmaker. Um, so I'm not sure that, and and there are some there are some maybe there are some themes that he's that he's interested in. He's kind of uh, well. Let me back up for a minute. The other thing I would say about Beresford is he's a great adapter. So you know this is an this is an adaptation from a, both a play and a previous screenplay. But he, you know, there was an Oscar nomination for the film for Driving Miss Daisy, which 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 he directed. Um, there's a couple of other films he's directed, which are adaptations. So that's the first thing I would say. It's a great adapter. Well, and uh, I, I would it, add to that, particularly an adapter from the stage, um, yes. because as I was reading about him, I was taken aback how many of these things were. This was a popular play. He mm-hmm. then made the movie of it. 
Yeah, that's right. So, you know, Kubrick is a great adapter of novels and short stories, and Beresford's a great adapter of stage. Um, I, I think, you know, he's he's somebody who is um, kind of really interested in uh, in deep characterization. Uh, I, and that's not exactly a thematic con connection, but, but he has really well-rounded, deeply uh, developed characters. And as I said, he's also very visual, and that's because uh, he worked quite a bit with the cinematographer on this film, Donald McElpine. And McElpine went on to have a really uh, pretty, has had a really distinguished career, often cinematography for other Australian uh, directors and got an Oscar nomination for cinematography in Moulin Rouge. So when I think of Beresford, I, I actually think of the imagery maybe more than anything else. Yeah, that that, that makes sense because if I when I think of, um, uh, when I think of Tender Mercies, that's a movie where, images come to mind more than uh, images and the, and I will say the performances come to mind more than specific ideas or, or things like that. You know, uh, since it's been a while since I've seen that the stuff that's sticky to me has to do with uh, clearly he gets good performances out of people because um, uh, Duvall is great in tender mercies. And I think almost everybody's great in this movie. <laughs> I, I, I will bring up one theme that just occurred to me though, Sam, and that is, it's in this film. It's in Driving Miss Davy, Daisy. It's in a couple that we haven't mentioned, um, Black Robe and Mr. Johnson. Um, he's really, he's interested in culture clashes. Hmm. Uh, and, and that's a very important element in this film because it's not only the British clashing with the Boers, but it's the British clashing with the Australians. Uh, and Mr. Johnson is set in colonial Africa. Uh, Black Robe is set in uh, 17th century France and its missionaries and Native Americans. Uh, driving this Davy, Daisy, you can say you've got uh, cultural as well as as, as racial uh, tensions there. So I think if I had to identify a theme that comes up again and again in Beresford, that's the one I would I would identify. So uh, when I started to watch this movie, what what the first thing that thrilled me is I realized this was going to be a courtroom drama, which is one of my favorite sort of subgenres of movies, um, and I think. I was trying to think how many of these we've watched for this podcast. I think this is maybe the fourth thing you could loosely qualify as a courtroom drama. So paths of glory is the most, and uh, we'll talk more about its connection to paths of glory is the most obvious connection. But I thought about like the Oxbow incident has courtroom mm -hmm. drama feel to it. And then, then Rashomon is also a, a courtroom oh, yeah. setting as well. So um, I, there's some, um, aspects of courtroom films that i like and this movie has that uh and 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 you know part of it is that by definition the courtroom film usually puts the viewer in a seat of judgment like like we are because we are quite literally being presented cases in the in the uh the film and you're supposed to usually supposed to think about well what what do, what do you think about what is just in this situation um and and this movie definitely does that it creates an inroads for thinking about some of those like philosophical questions about justice and uh, and it's interesting because each of those movies that you've mentioned we have very different places of judgment for the for the audience um i mean the oxbow incident is really clear Whose side? It's really clear what side is the right side, I think, and whose side we should be on. Rashomon, of course, and I think that's also true in Paths of Glory. Uh, Rashomon is um, we're, we're we're really in the position of kind of befuddlement there. We're really not quite sure who to believe or, or quite sure who to think. What's interesting about this film is that Beresford 
you know, deliberately puts us in the position of we, we know we know these guys are guilty, right? We, we know they've done it. Um, and, and yet at the same time, the, the work of the film is actually the work of their defense counsel, which is to somehow generate some kind of sympathy or understanding for what they've done, even if we know that it's morally uh, re repugnant. So I think it's, of, of the four you've mentioned, I think this is the one that puts the audience in maybe the most complex uh, position. At least that's the way I, I mean, I felt like the film is a real, it's a real good intellectual workout, just following, kind of, kind of following the twists and turns of, of the argument and the way Beresford builds it with that alternation between what we see in the court, what we hear in the courtroom, and then what we actually see in the field. Absolutely. I, I, um, I think it's interesting to hear uh, one more plug for Criterion. Lots of great uh, features on this. Um, so, so I got to hear a lot of Beresford talking about this movie. And one of the things that was interesting to me is his sense of how it's not that the movie was misunderstood, but sort of, I think the message he wanted to ha to have this movie say gets lost a little bit clearly by viewers where um, he says this film often gets read as like, this is a movie about people who are railroaded by a system, mm -hmm. which it is. But that when you hear Beresford talk about it, he's like, yes, that happens. They are scapegoats for this, but that's not the thing he wants to talk about. So the, the interesting thing about the complexity of this is, is like, uh, and maybe we can circle back to this as we talk about this movie is like, is his message actually being conveyed? Because the, the message he wants to talk about is is most clearly conveyed in the closing arguments of um of Thompson, where where it is about this idea that like what does how does war change people and and how does it lead otherwise good people to do inhumane things? Um, and I wonder, like when you think about this movie, is that the core idea that you think about with this? Because it's 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 what Beresford want, says he wants you to think about, but he says you know this ends up being a movie that some people look at and say like yeah this is about how the British railroaded these Australians and used them as scapegoats, which it is. But again, I find that interesting. Well, I, I guess I guess well first of all, let me say that 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 closing speech by Thomas is one that Beresford wrote. It's not in the play and it's not in the screenplay that he, he adapted. So I guess I would also add that Beresford is a really good writer. Uh, he's a better writer than Stanley Kubrick, uh, for sure. Um, I, I guess, you know, I think I hold those two ideas in tension because I think, you know, you get you get this that scapegoats of the empire um, sentiment expressed so powerfully towards the end. And uh, <laughs> one, of, one, of, one of my favorite lines is... Um, Morant says, "Well, Peter, this is what comes of empire building." Right. Um, I mean, I, I of course I love Morant's mordant sense of humor, uh, but so to me, I, I don't. I I have to say that's that's still a very important idea. But you're right. The the apologia, in a sense, that Thomas says at the end, which is, um, well, he says a couple of things. One, one thing he says is, uh, if soldiers at war are, are to be judged by civilian rules, uh, court martials would be courts martial would be in permanent session. Um, so I think, you know, he, he, I, I, so I do think that idea is, that he's raising is really important, which is on what basis can you judge the actions of men in the field? Can you judge them on the, can judge them on the basis of, of standard morality, or even, I think what they're questioning more here is not just standard morality, they're questioning the rules of war mm -hmm. because it is contrary to the rule of war to kill your prisoners. So it's not just that you can't judge them by, I mean, you can't hold soldiers accountable for murder. That's nonsensical. But there are ways in which the way 
the appropriate way or the, the acceptable way to kill the enemy versus the unacceptable way. But, of course, the other argument here is this is a new kind of war. Right. How do you how do you deal with an enemy that doesn't wear a uniform and you can't tell who it is that's going to actually be you know shoot, shooting at you? But I also should add that there were some ways in which uh, that argument was read by Americans in terms of Vietnam and things like the Malay massacre, and so I think that becomes a a, a touchy argument for a lot of people. Are we going to say you know Lieutenant Callie? How can we judge him by you know by standard rules? Uh, and 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 we don't want to do that. Uh, so yeah, I want to come back to Vietnam because I I do think making this movie in 1980, if you make a war movie in 1980, it regardless of what war it is, it's always kind of going to be a little bit of a Vietnam War movie, at least to American eyes. Um, so so I want to circle back to that. Um, I think it's interesting to compare this to Paths of Glory, um, because I think there are ways in which it has some similarities, but there's also ways, and, and Beresford talks about this, that like this movie is in some ways the opposite of <laughs> Paths of Glory. So so in a movie like Paths of Glory, you have um three more or less innocent men because they're selected. They're it's they're they're not on trial for their specific crimes. Their trial and I'm putting crimes in quotes there too. They're put on trial for the crimes of others, right? They're selected out of their units um uh to be killed. So in essence their um crime is acting humanly in an inhumane situation, right? That the human response of at mm-hmm. least to the people accusing them is you acted like cowards, right? And you're supposed to be soldiers, but you know, but 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 that is a potential human response to say, I'm not just going to walk out and get cut continue to get cut down uh by machine gun fire, right? So they're they're on trial for disobeying orders very explicitly. And in Breaker Morant, you get soldiers who are making this claim that they are following direct orders uh, and to your point, uh, to your point and to Thompson's point um, that they're uh, committing acts that seem to us to be wrong. So really they're acting inhumanely in an inhumane situation is what, uh, is what he is what uh, Thompson says. Um, so, so they're very different um, even kind of crimes that, that, that those court martials are about. So they're in some ways, they're different messages about war, like, like what, or, or they're, they're different uh, poles of the argument about what war does to what war does to people. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Sam. First of all, you know, they, they, in a sense, they're both trials about scapegoats, right? They're obviously they're both there, are, you know, the men and in, 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 uh, paths of glory are chosen. You said by random, they're scapegoats for the, for the cowardice of the entire uh, division. Um, but secondly, it's interesting that they that they are judged for not acting according to uh, standard morality, right? Because as, as you said, you're you're in front. One's impulse is to run away from being killed, but they're told, "No, this is war." So you're supposed to you're supposed to march on and be killed if that's if that's necessary. So it, it, there, so it's also playing with the connection between um, the rules of war and the rules of of standard of standard morality. Um, I do love how both of these films are interested in talking about the distance between those making decisions and those needing to execute those decisions. So I like that we don't see Lord Kirchner actually issue the order to kill to kill prisoners, but the movie makes the case that it is very clear that that happened, right? And we keep going back to to Kitchener's um, uh, Kitchener's the house that he lives in and and there is just such a distance between that and what we see at Fort Edward and what we see um you know what we see in the prison and um 
uh, and that that sort of echoes has the glory, right? The the folks in the French villas versus the folks at at the front lines. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I have to say, what, and one of my favorite moments in in the Kitchener uh, residence is early on when he's having a conversation with the uh, with the prosecutor uh, about you know what they're what they're going to do to 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 demonstrate that they have a. Um, uh, impartial sense of justice, but he talks about the uh, the fear of the Germans. They don't want the Germans in South a- in South Africa, and um, and the uh, the the prosecutor the prosecutor says um, they lack our sense of altruism. Yes, I wrote that down too. And 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 what I love about it is I can't I can't comp- I, I'm not really sure. Whether that, that's Bolton that says that, mm-hmm. I, I'm not really sure whether Bolton is saying it straight or not. But you can certainly tell the Kitchener. I mean, there, there's a there's that wonderful pause, and, and Kitchener, it's like, and I think it's I think it's Kitchener indicating that he's not sure whether this is an inge- a disingenuous remark or not. So he decides to take it straight. You know, he so he goes he goes from that brief moment of skeptical skeptical look to a uh, to a very straightforward yes, quite right. And yes. I just because it's one of the, one of the subtexts of this film, right, is is that theme of empire building and what kind of compromises and even crimes are committed in the interest of building this glorious Brit- British empire. Absolutely no, I and and I think you're pointing out some some things about this movie, and it, it, which is also that for as serious of a subject as this is like it is in little moments very funny like i love i and some of it is dark humor like you know like um the the nonchalant way he says well this is the cost of empire building you know as they're about to be executed or when um when uh hancock is you know constantly commenting at the people testifying against them and and the the major in charge the court martial says you know you got to stop that or you're going to be in real trouble and he's like how much more trouble could i be in <laughs> you know just like 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 pointing to the obvious of if you're if you're facing death in a court that seems to be against you like there's a kind of freedom in that like what they they can't kill him twice and 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 that's actually a very Shakespearean move. You know, Shakespeare always found ways in his tragedies to to introduce little moments of of humor that would actually help the audience kind of release pressure in order that it can then be built up again. So I think those are very kind of deliberately sprinkled throughout, and and also they really help to characterize each of the men differently. So you know, Morant's got his own own sense of humor. Uh, Hancock is a little more brash. And then you've got uh, George Witten, who uh, just takes the whole thing terribly seriously. I mean, that, that's that's the irony. I mean, he's the one who's in least danger and he's the one that takes it most most seriously. And, the, and that also distinguishes them, I think, according to their age and experience as well. Yes. I, I mean, uh, to, to the point about the humor, the movie also ends with a joke. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, that, that they seed earlier when they're that great shot where they're where there's the wall dividing the frame and on the left you have them building the caskets and on the right they're in in jail and they're talking about like well at least they could have taken our measurements and Morant says well I don't think they've had any complaints and then when you see Hancock being put into his right. uh, into his coffin they're like shoving him in trying to make him fit um which which again tells you <laughs> tells you something you know about about Beresford as a writer too because that's obviously the kind of thing that's not from the play but it's like it's it's something we can seed earlier and then just have this this last moment to go out on again a a dark joke but a joke 
Yeah, and another and another example of Beresford uh, operating visually uh, and expecting that the audience will will get it. That uh, Hancock, uh, yeah, they don't care about him, but also he's literally a misfit in terms of of, uh, of the action. So when I watch this movie, another film that I am quite familiar with and and, and love a great deal. Uh, came to mind as a much better comparison for this. Uh, and that is uh, Rob Reiner and Aaron Sorkin's A Few Good Men, mm. because that actually hits the beats of this story so much more. I did a bunch of searches to try to see, like, is is there ever a time when Aaron Sorkin talks about Breaker Morant? Because it it feels like he's lifting pieces, like structural pieces of this, of, of Breaker Morant to tell a story like A Few Good Men. Um, so for example, you have soldiers on trial for following orders, but the orders don't seem to exist. Mm. Um, uh, you could, uh, you have the, the great moment when, um, uh, it's, it, this, this was this was the the moment when I thought most about a few good men is when Thompson decides he's going to call K- Kirchner to the stand, mm. and there's this question of like, well, can he do that? And he's like saying, you know, he has these rights. And then the next scene is Thompson sitting having tea, and Bolton comes up to him, and they have a conversation about like, mm-hmm. what does this mean for you and your career if you actually go ahead with this? And that is a direct scene that happens in a few good men about calling Colonel Jessup to the stand. Um, so there's, there's just these moments where I'm like, oh, this. This feels like like the structure of what Sorkin's doing, except Sorkin is more interested in the attorneys. I mean, the the actual accused and a few good men are um, minor minor characters compared mm-hmm. to the attorneys. Where Beresford is is really foregrounding, I think the the Thompson, but especially I think the three uh, the three people on trial. So I take it you didn't find any evidence that Sorkin had referenced. I couldn't. It. I couldn't. But but <laughs> I, but it sure felt like it sure felt like like there's. DNA there, even though I couldn't yeah. find it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also think it's really interesting to have this movie set uh, in the Boer War um, for for what that the significance of that for Australia, for Britain, and doing this in you know in 1980. Um, and Beresford talks about in the commentary how in 1980 it's a largely forgotten war. So so he has the title cards at the beginning because. There's this sense of like, well, people aren't going to know what what war these people are fighting in, so he has to explain it um, a little bit at the beginning. Um, and for the British, this is really their kind of dry run for what's going to become World War One. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see some things. Um, uh, we see some things happening in this movie that are the you know kind of laying the groundwork for uh, for this. So, for example, the use of the machine gun. You know, jumped out at me, and with the, at the when the the prison is being attacked. I mean, that's another great scene where the prison's being attacked, and they take the three accused out and hand them guns and say, "Okay, well, you're British soldiers again. You know, come fight." And and you see them using the machine gun, which is going to become this. You know, in in three in thirteen years is going to become a major tool of the First World War. And a lot of the people who were officers in World War One for the British were people who cut their fighting teeth in. Um, yeah, in the Boer War. So I found that that really interesting. Or or even Hancock talking about the dum dum bullet, mm-hmm. right? And how like this is a new piece of technology that is specifically meant to kill, not just you know, not just shoot somebody. But the idea is you get hit with one of these and it rips the back of your head off. You know. So he says like, don't talk to me about right and wrong. And this feels like when you get to World War One and you're talking about you know artillery and gas and things like this, like like like. This is that that whole idea of that you know um, 
uh, Hunt says to to Morant, "The gentleman's war is over," mm-hmm. you know, and and there is this sense of like that is that is what we're going to see when we get to World War One. What's uh, what's astonishing about that scene you just mentioned, Sam, is that that really happened. Um, there, the 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 Boers really did attack the prison, and the prisoners really were released, and they really did fight, and they really did ask for clemency as a result. Which brings me to an, an important point that Beresford did a lot of um, really painstaking research for this film. So, I mean, almost everything in here that he's put in is historically verifiable, uh, including uh, Hancock and Morant holding hands uh, uh-huh. to, be, to be executed. Whether or not Morant said that final line is kind of disputed. Uh, it's sort of passed into lore. But what's interesting to me is that one of the one of the documents we do not have is we do not have any kind of transcript or record of the trial itself, um, which I find kind of astonishing uh, because, as we've talked about earlier, uh, when we've done Joan of Arc, we actually have we have the we have the trial transcript from from Joan of Arc's trial, uh, but we don't we don't have it from from this particular trial. I thought Beresford de- debunked that in the commentary that it says people say that, but that he says no, it exists. And, did and he debunk can, it? That's what I'm yeah, trying to remember. He did. Yeah, yeah. He said he said that okay. there that that there is there is a transcript of the. There trial. is a transcript. Okay. And we see somebody. I, we, we we actually see uh, see somebody writing a transcript. We see a someone transcribing. Well, there, there is a transcriber. Yeah. Okay. Um. Because I, I read an article in a um or I skimmed an article in a in a in an academic journal just this morning, and they. In that article, they had said there was not a transcript, but maybe they weren't aware of what those were found. Yeah, he said it's it's sort of a myth about this trial that it doesn't uh, okay. exist, but he said that that it does. So another interesting thing about the Boer War, and you you hinted at this, is is you know we're thinking about colonialism and imperialism. This is a movie that is about deep layers of colonial imperial attitudes. So you have the British, who are you know the big imperial uh, power fighting in South Africa. And then you have the Australians who they refer who the British refer to as colonials as an insult to say, well, you're not British. You're <laughs> part of this new Commonwealth of Australia. So you're something lesser for that. So at one level, like it the movie puts you in the position of being sympathetic to the Australians as these people who are um put upon by the British. But at the mm-hmm. same time, if you think about the movies we've watched in the last two weeks, the the uh, people of English descent in Australia are themselves colonial imperial powers, right? There are people who are indigenous to Australia who would view them in a different way. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Boers and the the you know the multiple characters talk about the poor Boer farmers, but they're also colonial powers because yes. they're just an older colonial Dutch force. And so there's a layer underneath this movie that. Uh, I mean, you could argue maybe there's not time to touch on that in this movie. There, there are a few indications where you're seeing, uh, you know, you're seeing black Africans in the movie. But, but by and large, this is about colonial powers fighting other colonial powers for control over South Africa. So you have all of those layers in there. You know, and you even, like you said, you even get the German, the idea that, well, the Germans have this interest when Kitchener mm-hmm. says before the, the altruism line, he says they're only interested in the uh, the the gold and the diamonds, right? right, right. Um, so you get that. Uh, and I think this is a very, it's very interesting that this movie is obviously clearly from an Australian point of view, you know, in terms of that. But I think it's complex to look at this movie through American eyes and think about like, okay, what does it mean to be an American? And you know, even hundreds of years later, there is still this 
legacy of colonial of like uh you know the euro americans as a colonial power even though we don't see ourselves that way you know in, in america that we are not indigenous to this land so so i, I love the layers of that and the, the complexity of that and it's the kind of thing through 2023 eyes maybe you say why don't you dig why don't you dig a step deeper and maybe that's a, a shortcoming of this movie but like i said maybe there isn't space in this movie to tell that story yeah um yeah, that that's right. I, but you know, Morant himself, right, is is actually English. Well, that makes it more interesting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So 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 he's both English and 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 Australian. And um, in fact, uh, the little the little uh, scene of him uh, back in England uh, singing and kind of wooing Hunt's uh, sister that that actually happened in the interregnum of, b- b- between his first enlistment and his second second enlistment. Mm. So he, uh, yeah, he kind of he kind of brings he kind of brings that element, and I and I do think that the continual reference by the English to the Australians as the colonials, uh, you know, helps to kind of highlight that part of part of the theme. But there is an irony, as, as people have pointed out, which is, gee, the Australians ought to have sympathy for the Boers because they, they they're 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 closer in in terms of their relationship to 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 the the empire. But of course, at the time. Australia was a new, newly won Commonwealth, and that's one of the dynamics behind their attitude. It's uh, what happens. So the so then the other thing I thought about, which you've touched on, is sort of the connection between this and uh, v- and the Vietnam War and you know the Vietnam era movies. So you talked about you know my lie a little bit and the you know the complexity of the Nuremberg defense of just saying, well, I was following orders, so that mm-hmm. you know that 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 should you know, wash the hands of, of folks who, you know, who, who do these things. And this movie wants to think about that. And, um, uh, that's why I think it's interesting that, um, uh, Beresford makes it very clear that these are not innocent people. So you, so you have to look at, um, Hancock and, uh, and Morant pretty specifically and say, okay, let's, Let's reckon with what we've seen them do. Um, I also there 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 are moments where I thought about Apocalypse Now a little bit in this movie, because um, mm. when when Hancock is or when they're talking about Hancock and the what his tactic with the putting the prisoners in the front of the train car and open mm-hmm. carriages, there's oh, this yeah. sense of like that goes against military order and what we do, but it worked. Right. And there is this sense, at least early Kurtz is like Kurtz is doing all of these things with these methods that are unsound, but then also like Viet Cong activity stopped. So it's like, well, what he did worked, but it doesn't fit these these things. So so what does it mean to be fighting a new war, you know, in terms of in terms of those things? So that I feel like is a tension sometimes within especially within the Kurtz character in Apocalypse Now. I mean, it's it's weird to say compare Hancock and Kurtz, but there is this sort of element of like. Well, are we here to win this war, or are we here to follow to follow your set of rules mm-hmm. and just keep spinning our wheels? Yeah, yeah, and of course, you know the the frustrate the frustration there. You know, Thomas has become in the course of this trial. I mean, we should note that you know he's become very resourceful, which is another one of those courtroom tropes, mm-hmm. right? The guy that walks in, it seems like he's not really sure what he's doing, and he, but he, but you know, he it's really one of his many attempts to hoist them by their own petard mm-hmm. and, and 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 one of the things that Beresford is quite clear about and and you sense this from the beginning right is that this is not going to be a fair trial 
So, so, that, so there's another irony here, too, that um, a court which is calling these soldiers to account for supposedly not following the rules is itself not following the actual rules of courtroom procedure. I mean, several of several of Thomas's efforts to, you know, dismiss the case or, uh, you know, other procedural elements that he brings up. I mean, they're they're fairly sound, and yet you can tell that this you can tell that the the verdict is perhaps. Well, you know, it's predetermined historically, but it, but it, but it seems predetermined judicially as well. Yeah, and 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 there there is an irony also to even in the line of questioning, they compare what Morant did in the field to to what they're experiencing here, and they're saying like, well, this is clearly a fair trial. Did what Morant do oh, for yeah, these soldiers, yeah. and 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 you know, you you instantly think, well, wait, they're holding this up as like yeah. the the epitome of what a fair trial looks like. <laughs> it's like if 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 he conducted himself like they are, of course he's going to find them guilty because they've already been found guilty. Um, I'm curious about your your thoughts on the three central characters, the three central accused characters, mm-hmm. um, because they're they're they all, as you pointed out, sort of serve kind of uh, different functions, and 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 uh, you know, it, part of this is also the role that flashback plays in this movie. So, um, what's interesting is when I first my first time watching this, some of the early flashback scenes were. I think intentionally in good ways, confusing to me, like when hunt makes that first raid for one thing, it's at night. So it's dark and I'm not sure what I'm looking at. I'm not sure what they're trying to do. Even though when I watched it again, it's like, well, they do say, but it just sort of feels like this is confusing. And that sort of lays out the, yes, the things that are happening in war are confusing too. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the, I think the, the, the potential key things, and I'm curious how you feel about like, do you feel like, Morant's response to Hunt's death is um you feel like you feel that enough to say this actually changed him because because the the movie makes this case that he didn't do these things and then after Hunt dies he does and mm. if if Beresford's point is to say war does these things to people um for one thing the uh Morant is such like a like a cool steely character that like it's hard to read him so we're supposed to try to read in like has he gone through some kind of change with hunt's death that leads him to now start doing things he wasn't doing before so i'm curious your thoughts on that well i mean i I, one thing i will say is that historically that's what happened i mean in in the historical record he was described as being like a madman after after hunt uh hunt's death but he doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like that in the performance no, I wouldn't say a madman, but um, I would say certainly, certainly somebody who has um, a dis—I don't know if you're, I don't know if sort of call it a disproportionate response, but certainly somebody who has a response that is is somewhat out of control. And 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 I think the thing that I find difficult about his response is that I don't see it so much as um, as part of the, of an act of war as it is an act of of, of vengeance mm-hmm. which is what's pointed out so i his his response is really based much more on his personal relationship to captain hunt than it is i think on any particular strategy for war i mean it really it really it really it really becomes a uh an a, 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 a vengeance narrative at that point so in a sense you really kind of end up i think having kind of three different occasions on which 
Morant may be guilty of a war crime. You have that one, you have the execution of the prisoners, and then you have the execution of the, of the missionary. So I think Barrister is actually playing with very different ways in which Morant uh, transgresses. Absolutely. No, and, and, I, and I think that it's, it ends up being... Uh, I think a strength of him is that he is somebody who's hard to read. Like, like this would not be as effective if your take on the performance of of uh, Edward Woodward is that he becomes a madman in vengeance. But it's like, but his actions are that even if his sort of outward emotions still seem kind of cool and steely, like that you have that, mm-hmm. um, you have that change. Um, and I think that's interesting because it makes you wonder, like, well, if it is vengeance for Hunt, like how guilty do I think Morant actually is then? Because if that's your reason, that's probably not a good reason because that's less about following orders and it's more about something personal. In the same way when you... uh, I I love the scene where we get the reveal that Hancock actually did kill. Yes. Yes. Because we are in George's shoes. I love when when George walks up and says, wow, I wonder who really did kill him. And Mm -hmm. Hancock says, well, it was me. And then you get this, this, it's a beautiful shot of where it's just this wall that they're up against. And it's like, you know, all these different kinds of stones making that wall. So it's, 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 it it looks great. And then you have all three characters and you're sort of learning a little bit about all of them, right? Like, um, I mean, Hancock is basically saying like, what does it matter if I'm lying now? This whole court is, is lies. So it's Mm -hmm. like, like I am essentially fighting fire with fire there. Like if they're going to trump up these things against me, then what, what interest do I have to play by the rules if they're not playing by the rules? And you see, like, it's a, um, Witten's interesting. Cause he's such a, he feels like such an innocent character. <laughs> and, um, you kind of wonder about like, to what degree is, is this, is he losing his innocence here or is his innocence still like pushing up against Hancock. I really love that scene. And then this is where you get Morant come in and say, like, it's a new war for a new century. It's like, like kind of all the old rules are out. Well, and of course, with, with the character of Hancock, you also get the the the, the great flashback uh, of his alibi, which, of course, is, is a lie. Um, I mean, he really well, it's did. It's a lie as an alibi. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he did have those liaisons, but, uh, and, 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 and it's interesting because it's almost as though um, you know, it, it, the gentleman's war is over, but it's almost as though when those um, testimonies are brought forward and Thomas asks, you know, that the women be spared the the, the indignity of having to t- testify in person, it's almost like you get this moment of gentlemanly uh, restraint, right? Oh, yeah, we we, we don't want to do that to, 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 to these women, even though they're Dutch women, which is ironic because they won't show the same kind of respect or constraint to the prisoners. So right. it just it just keeps being Beresford keeps kind of layering ironies on in that respect. And one of the things I love about the flashbacks is I realized in, in my second viewing of this is it really is a celebration of editing in storytelling mm. because whenever we get flat, we often get flashbacks to a scene more than once, and it's not that we're seeing a different view of that scene. It's often the same shots. It's just the camera is pulled back a little bit further or it's as if we're now getting less editing. We're getting a a little bit more that happened before that or a little bit more that happened after that. So it also in a different Rashomon way, it plays with the idea of truth. It's like it's there. There are sort of lies of omission. It's like, yes, I did go to to see those women so I can use that as an alibi, provided I also don't say I did this other thing, too. Mm -hmm, So the mm -hmm. first time you see Hesse shot, you don't see who does it. And then then later you realize Oh, that was Hancock. Like, like, like it actually was. Um, so, so it is. You know, we talk about like when does film work effectively for telling a story, particularly in some of this editing. I feel like it, it really does that because we see 
again, the same shots or the same series of shots, but if they're edited differently, it tells that story a little bit differently, even though nothing has materially changed on the screen. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. And I think that the um, Beresford actually singles out the editor of the film as, as somebody who's made a huge contribution in the film. You're right. The film is really well edited in that respect. And then we also get, I mean, the other thing in the flashbox is we get a very quick and I think a economical picture of why all three of them go to war. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that you get you get Hancock as clearly coming from a lower uh, economic class, and you know he talks about well, there's a depression, and I have a wife and child, and 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 I love this. I love again the seeding of something earlier when when he leaves his wife, he says, "I'm not much of a letter writer. If you hear from me, it's probably bad." Yeah. And then one of the last things we see Hancock do is write a letter, which apparently that is the text of the letter that he wrote that, that, um, that Beresford puts into the script. So, so that, that idea comes back there. I love with Witten that we don't get much, all we get is the father and people toasting him with champagne. So it's like, okay, this, so, so you can project out his, who he is, right? Clearly somebody from a higher economic class, higher status, Mm -hmm. who's really fighting to prove something to his father, at least the story is telling us that, right? There is the, so, cause he's concerned. The first thing he asks Thompson when Thompson appears in the movie is, you know, are they going to, um, mm-hmm. I think he says, are they going to cashier us or are they going to um, discharge us? I think, is that what he says? Yeah. You know, so there's this sense of like, how is my father going to respond to yeah. what the meaning of this is? Um, and, and, and for me, that makes, I think oddly one of the scenes that hit the hardest to me, was when Witten gets his sentencing. Yeah. Because, I mean, it, it's what I'm about to say sounds very strange, but you hear, you know, you have been sentenced to death, and then Lord Kirchner has, you know, has commuted that sentence to uh, um, to a life of penal, lifetime of penal servitude. And at one level, it almost feels like, oh, I think I'd rather be, sh-. especially because he's young. It's like mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. like a life sentence almost seems worse there. Uh, maybe it's just the words of the word penal servitude sounds sounds pretty dark thinking about 1901 1902 what that means but also it doesn't flash back to his father but Beresford has created a film where I flashed back to his father in my head and thought oh what is this father going to think about George and when you see the the only thing you see George do is shoot uh, an enemy combatant who has Mm -hmm. surrendered and is now attacking him and it's like that's the most in, I mean, that it's, it's killing somebody, but that you, you couldn't get a more, I mean, that is a self-defense case. Yeah. I mean, even if you weren't at war, I mean, right. if, if that, yeah, it's a, it's a civilian crime that, that, yeah, that's uh, um, forgivable. Yeah. Um, I think that that, you know, you mentioned the montage of each of the, of each of them, you know, the reasons for enlisting. I think the montage of the sentencing is equally impressive. Yes. Um, you, you just described the one with George well, one more thing with George's too is I, and this is the acting on the face of the major reading the sentence, is it feels like he, without saying it, is implying you should say thank you to me now. Yeah, yeah. You know, and 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 you're looking at George, and he's sort of thinking like, wait a minute, I just like 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 I can't believe how all of this played out. Yes. Okay. Uh, let me also say as as an aside that this is a film that uses close ups. Uh, very, very uh, um, skillfully. So, especially the scene. I'm going to get back to the to the sentencing in a minute, but I have to talk about that scene where you know Johnny comes in to lie for Kitchener, and you get that extreme close up. It's almost like a fish angle lens, yeah. 
That's uh, a pass glory shot, at, right? Faces, well, yeah, faces him at distorted, and and here's a guy taking an oath, and you know that he's about to perjure himself so badly, um, and, and I just think the way his face is distorted like that kind of says everything. It, that's that's the moral commentary on what he's about, on what he's about yes. to do. Yes. Um, but anyway, so. You know, I love the moment of Morant sentencing, right? I mean, it's like Morant is going to prove that despite what you say about me, I am a soldier, you know, and he just concludes that with sir. And even even the judge, even the lieutenant is a little taken aback, I think, by Morant's courage at that point. And then with Hancock, you don't get anything. You right. just get Hancock's walking away. Yeah, you don't even get the sentence. You don't get you're the just, sentence. You just, you just get Hancock, and then he walks away. So I, 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 I think that is some really, really brilliant filmmaking and editing. Absolutely. So then we get to the uh, the lead up to the execution scene, and you see again, there's something heartbreaking about seeing George uh, Witten manacled and led away because, like, I think about these three as like they are. They are brothers in this, you know, in all the complicated ways that brothers are. And you mm-hmm. see him led away. And as he goes out, you see him looking at the firing squad prepare outside of the prison. And there's almost this. I mean, I do have this sense of like, does George wish he was with them? Yeah. You know, as he's as he's getting led away. And he just seems so confused about like, um, what does what is what's happening to me? What does this mean? Mm-hmm. Um, which to go back to a few good men, it reminds me of the. um uh uh i'm blanking on the the name of the the character or the name of the the actor marshall who's in who's um in um twin peaks as well uh he plays one well, doesn't matter but he's the the sort of weaker or more submissive of the two on trial and he keeps looking to the other guy it's like what does this mean and i feel like george has a little bit of that as he looks to morant to be like what does you know what does this mean and that's where morant gives the line of you know we're scapegoats for the bloody empire which is the name of George Witten's book that he writes later in life yes. about this. So um, so then we get to the actual execution scene. And as you pointed out, we get the two of them um, holding hands, which struck me as such an interesting um, detail as you're walking, uh, as you're watching them walk. It's beautifully shot. Um, and, and I had this thought of like, that must have happened because it's so strange yes. to see. Yes. Um, you know, cause you think of the military as this like traditional masculinity and there is something very beautiful about that. Mm-hmm. And it, as it turns out, Beresford was, you know, as studying this that oh, this is, this in fact happened. They went, they walked hand in hand to their, uh, to their execution. That is, uh, that scene is what that's, that's the scene when I talked to her about images from the film that have been burned into my brain. That's, that, that's one of them. And, um, and then when they're actually shot and they topple over backwards and you get the scene from behind shooting into the sun, mm-hmm. I I paused that and just looked at it. It's it's it, and, and to shoot into the sun like that is very difficult. You know, we talked about that with Rasham and it, it but traditionally it's not something photographers are supposed to do. But um yeah, it's just it's there's so much going on in those final five minutes, visually, hourly, uh, in terms of of uh, of the voiceover as well. And and there still is something shocking about it, even though you know from the first minute of the movie this is where it's headed. There is still something shocking about seeing it happen and realizing that this was always headed in this direction. Um, so my last question for you is, uh, and then and I realize this is this is an this is a question with multiple answers, but like ultimately, whose story is this? I mean the the title of this movie is Breaker Morant. Um, you know, and I mentioned how how Sorkin leans on the attorneys more than the accused. Um, 
Beresford puts the real argument for this movie in the hands of Thompson, the the attorney, um, is do you see this as Morant's story, as Thompson's story, as Witten's story? I don't think it's Hancock's story particular. <laughs> I mean, it's partially, but like like there are three characters where you could say like it kind of is their story. Well, I think I think what Beresford's pulled off is I think he's managed to make a story that is about an issue. Mm-hmm. I, I I think I think I think the story is really about the the protagonist of the film is war uh and 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 it's a, and it's and it is a story about how do we deal with the barbarity of, of of war uh and morant i think becomes i mean in a sense i mean this the, the film comes alive for me most when morant is in it i have to say yes. and as a character is he's extremely charismatic he gets he gets most of the best lines so yeah in many ways yes it's breaker Morant's story but i think it's really a good example of a film that manages to take a large complex philosophical issue and really make that the focus through these really engaging characters absolutely so do you have other things you want to talk about with this movie yeah i gotta go back to the ending uh, because there's several interesting things going on at, at the ending um one is that well first of all let me say throughout the film this is a very intentional strategy by beresford there is no non-diegetic music the only music you hear in the film is the british brass band and that's and it punctuates the film. Beresford just brings it in at different points. And that's very, very deliberate on, on his part. Um, so when you come to the emotional climax of the film, I found a very, there's a very interesting um, article I found talking about this ending as opposed to the ending of Peter Weir's Gallipoli, which had come out the year before. Um, and the, the final tragic moments in Gallipoli have a, uh, there's a haunting uh adagio in g minor by um i forget the the composers but anyway it's very poignant but it's also a kind of emotional manipulation and that's the danger of of music so beresford eschews anything like that and instead he actually enables morant to have the last word in two senses okay first of all he gets to recite his poem uh, uh, butchered to make a Dutchman's holiday is the name of the, of the poem, which is the one he wrote the night before he was killed. And this reminds me, and I'm not sure that Beresford was thinking about this or not, but this reminds me of the non-diegetic soundtrack in um, Tarkovsky's Mirror, which is the father of the character in the film based on Tarkovsky's father reading poetry. Hmm. Um, so it's a really, it, what's interesting is it actually has, I think, as profound a, as profound a, a um, an emotional impact as music would have. But then to kind of redouble the irony, Beresford does give you uh, finally some non-diegetic music. Uh, and that is um, Soldiers of the Queen, which is, of course, deeply ironic. And it's being sung by Edward Woodward, uh, right. who is a, who uh, we saw him singing earlier in the film. He's got that fine tenor voice. So, okay. And, and I want to say one more thing about Soldiers of the Queen, because one of the, last things that with the epitaph that um that break and Maria asked for is that gospel verse from matthew right the, the uh the, the, how, how does it go that the, the, those of their, of their own uh the enemies will be of their own a man's own. foe shall be they of his own household which also tells you there's another war in this film and that is it's a civil war it's it's the brits against the australians and that is a civil war because they're supposed to be on the same side so i think beresford is introducing that possibility as well absolutely um i i love the i was thinking about like like other um 
little scenes that I love. I love the scene before when Kishner is called to testify, when he meets with Hamilton to tell him, basically, can you go testify for me? I love how much Kitchener seems like a, a character we've met in this movie already, but he seems like a spoiled child at that moment. Mm. I mean, he, he is in all the trappings of his very important job and I'm sure he has fought bravely in other wars and things like this, but there's just this moment of like, I don't want to do this. Can you just do this for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I, I really loved that, um, that particular uh, moment in this film, uh, that portrayal is great. If you've ever seen pictures of of Lord Kitchener, like it looks just like I, I feel like the casting in this movie looks. The uh, that's part of why um, Edward Woodward was cast. Is mm-hmm, is yes. uh, Beresford said I've seen pictures of Morant and they just look identical, and they in fact do. He looks yeah. a great deal like him. One one more note about Kitchener: the most important scene is the one he uh, with him is the one he doesn't appear in when Thomas mm-hmm. breaks into the house and he's not there. And it made me think, um, this is a theme I mentioned before, uh, how how interesting it is, uh, the time period in which a film is set. And so he's he's he can't be reached because, he, you know, he's off, he's off in the belt. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, today, you know, maybe if he's got a cell, we could actually ring him up. But no, this is just not possible. He's he's uh, incommunicado in, in, in the most profound sense. I will say this movie is really well cast and it's full of actors that like, I don't know from other things, or if I do, I don't recognize them except I kept looking at Edward Woodward and I was like, why do I know this face? Um, and uh, he was on a TV show in the eighties in the U S called the equalizer, which Denzel mm-hmm. Washington has made movies of. And it was like, Oh, that's like, I had to look him up to be like, I've seen this face so many times. And so it was, it was, it was funny to finally place uh place who that was. Yeah, and 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 you know the uh, Beresford was not a, he was told he couldn't get funding for the film unless he got a name Australian actor. So that's how he got Jack Thompson to play the to play the defender. And he and he's a very fine actor, and he's been in some other Beresford films as well. Yeah, he's quite good in this movie. So Barrett, we're going to take a week off. So our next uh, our next film will be in two weeks. Uh, what do you have for us? Well, you know, we already suggested that this is a film that you could uh, pair with. Um, uh, Paths of Glory, or you could pair it with A Few Good Men. So I'm going to pair it with a film that I suspect you have not heard of. Um, and I, it's a film that I'm going to watch for the first time. So I'll put that right out there. Uh, Joseph Losey's 1964 film, King and Country, uh, which is another World War I military trial film. And it seems to me that the, the this along with uh, Breaker Morant and Pastor Glory makes a nice little triptych. Uh, although maybe we need to throw in a few good men as well. Uh, this is fantastic. I, this is a movie that came up in reading about this film. I heard this film reference, so that's the only the only time yeah. I've heard of it is is uh, in reading about Breaker Morant. So I'm very excited. You tell me it's another another uh, military courtroom film. I'm in on that uh, for for sure. I'm very excited. Um, Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this. If you if you haven't seen this movie, it is spectacular. Um, I was I was pretty blown away by how good this was. It was a it was a pleasure to watch the first time, and I was excited for my second viewing. Sometimes the second viewing is there out of necessity. This time it was fun to just uh, to just watch. So uh, thank you for recommending this. Thank you for having this conversation. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back in two weeks to talk about king and country in the video store 